Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. At the heart of my other podcast, Doomsday Watch, is the concept of a global crisis. So the existence of a new book entitled How to Survive a Crisis, published by Penguin, is something we might all need right now. And in fact, Sir Alex Younger, chief of MI6, has said this book is the instruction manual we all need. Its author, Sir David Omand, is my guest today. He's the preeminent national security official of his generation. He was the top civil servant in the Home Office, where he developed the national counterterrorism strategy. Later on, he rang GCHQ, a globally significant intelligence agency, and he has held leadership roles both in the Ministry of Defence and at the heart of government in the Cabinet Office. So it's a delight to have Sir David here with me today to talk about his new book. David, welcome. Thank you. Um, David, uh, I've had a chance to read this book. I found it really striking. Uh, I've, I've had a small engagement with sort of crisis situations in my own life, and I probably, like many of your readers, will read it and think, God, if, I, if only I'd had that book. I was really struck, actually, literally the first page, the dedication for the victims of crises that need not have been. And I actually wanted to ask you, did you write this book from the outset with a feeling that there were crises that you either had some involvement with or you knew about that really didn't need to have happened? To some extent, yes. But I wrote the book really to make a difference for the future because we will be subjected to a whole range of crises in the years to come. We're more vulnerable as a society than we've ever been. We're more networked. The networks are fragile. Supply chains are fragile. So we're more vulnerable. And we have, I believe, less resilience now than perhaps we had in the past. So the book is a, a shout out saying, get serious about building up national resilience, corporate resilience in our companies and departments, and Think about personal resilience. What would you do if your world was turned upside down by some unforeseen event? I was very struck by that point about the personal resilience. This is a book which, of course, I'm sure will be devoured by corporate leaders and people in, in government roles and so on. But you, you will also uh, write this book to some extent for ordinary individuals thinking about how they lead their family lives and so on. In uh, the end, all crises are local. Yeah. It's real people in real places that end up getting hurt. I'd be surprised if there was anyone listening to this who hasn't experienced crisis. It might be personal or in the family. It might be in the workplace. Or it might be thinking back to COVID, thinking back to a national crisis. And I define crisis as it's that period when bad things are happening, events are hitting you faster and with more intensity than normal responses can cope with. So you've lost control. Now, with luck and with good preparation, and if you've thought about some of this in advance, quite quickly, it reverts to being an emergency. And we know how to deal with emergencies. The emergency services are practiced and rehearsed if it's that kind of problem. It may be painful. There may indeed be, uh, have already been casualties. But nonetheless, you'll get through it. Whereas if you haven't done the preparation, and this comes back to we haven't invested enough in resilience, then you tip over into disaster. 
how does that balance sit? Because I think some people say, well, we don't know what's going to happen, so how can we prepare? And yet preparation can help nonetheless. I think the preparation is essential. If you think about the kind of crises we might face over the next 10 years, it's not difficult to see, see how some of those might hit us because we've got plenty of experience, pandemics recently, for example. The anticipation word, I think, is important because it's more than just reading a report that says there's an X percent probability that in the next 10 years there will be these extreme weather events or whatever. It's actually conjuring up in your mind a vivid picture of what it would actually be like if we had a run of years where, say, the temperature was well over 40. What would that actually be like? And very quickly, you can then think of, well, it's going to take a long time, but we ought to be talking with the water companies about expanding our capacity. We ought to be thinking about the power demands of air conditioning, there are all sorts of things you could begin to start planning out once you've got that vivid picture in your mind of what it would be like for people. Yeah. This issue of preparedness, uh, it seems relevant and topical because we're, we're recording at the time that the national COVID inquiry is just beginning and, and the opening statements of the inquiry drew attention to what appeared to be a lack of preparedness in the UK government system. And of course, the current political scandal of, of the, the fate of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson relates to those events also. Um, now, something that is notable about Britain's uh, preparedness for COVID was that in the National Risk Register, and you'll know this very well, whilst a specific COVID-style pandemic was not anticipated, the prospect of a pandemic, probably a flu pandemic, was widely seen as highly, highly probable. And yet Britain didn't appear to have the necessary uh, preparedness for COVID. What, what's your judgment on, on why that might have been? I can think of a number of reasons, hypotheses, mm. that uh, Lady Hallett will need to test in this first part of her inquiry. If you go back quite a few years and compare the situation then with the situation at the time of the COVID outbreak, you would probably see that we were, in many respects, better prepared. Now, why, why did things go wrong? Mm. Well, one reason was 2007, eight, the financial crisis, the long period of austerity, just at a time when they were trying to expand the range of services they were providing. That needs, needs uh, looking at local government. Local government was really squeezed during austerity. They had to prioritize the immediate support of their local populations. So the number of emergency planners, specialists in building <laughs> resilience yeah. into local systems uh, was reduced. Yeah. Then you've got another strand of inquiry, which is uh, the years immediately before COVID mm -hmm. arrived. There had been an exercise, it's well known, yep. an exercise Cygnus that had revealed things that needed doing, some of which are very relevant, such as the position of care homes, mm. for example. Now, the distraction of Brexit, the fact that the whole government system had to prioritise preparing contingency plans for a no-deal Brexit. Do you mm. remember all of that? Because 
the way the government was negotiating, it was a distinct possibility. Yeah. So the government's key emergency planners were all busy on Operation Yellowhammer, as they called it, which was preparing for the no deal Brexit. They weren't busy implementing the lessons of Operation Cygnus. That's another strand of inquiry. Um, I pass no judgment because I think you, you really need to get inside what was happening and uh, uh, that's for the uh, independent inquiry. Yeah. Your book refers to, to a wide range of previous crises, many of which are featured in your own career, uh, going back early on, the, the Falklands War in, in more, more recent years, the Iraq War, and of course, the Allied withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, but you also, in the book, you, you lay out uh, in a very practical way at the end of each chapter, which I think is really helpful, the, the sort of key points. This is a, a manual. This is not a, a sort of memoir or, or, or a or a sort of um, a lengthy work of analysis, although it contains all of that. Uh, is there a key message or method that you want the reader to take away from having read the book? I remember I was a junior member of the Defence Private Office working for uh, Lord Carrington in 1973-4. And some listeners may remember the three-day week the miners were taking industrial action. Uh, there's an energy crisis, rising inflation. Sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> we were on a three-day week. Yeah. And I remember we were working in the Ministry of Defence uh, by candlelight on the nights when the power wasn't on. And we read these bulletins that came out of the civil contingency staff in the Cabinet Office showing the stocks of coal in those days, coal that could be burnt at the power stations. Yeah. And from those, you could work out how long Prime Minister Edward Heath had mm. to sort the situation out. Yeah. And then some bright spark decided to inspect the coal stocks and found the bottom third or whatever was waterlogged and couldn't be burnt. <laughs> so suddenly, Prime Minister had run out, of, literally and figuratively, had run out of energy. The government was swept away. Then... In 1979, only a few years later, I was back in the private office uh, and we had the winter of discontent. Sacks of stinking rubbish were piling up in every London street. The grave diggers were on strike, so the dead were unburied. Real social worries yeah. on the part of the public of what was going on and inflation was in double digits and rising fast. So the Jim Callaghan government was also facing this test of does the public have confidence? Mm. Jim Callaghan had been away in Guadeloupe mm. uh, at a big summit, very successful summit. Uh, against the advice of Number 10's press office, he decided to meet the journalists when his plane landed. Uh, he met them. It was not a successful encounter. And the Sun headline the next day finished him off. It was crisis, question mark, what crisis? Jim Callan never said that. But that was the impression that he gave the journalist. Don't yeah. worry about the crisis. We've got this summit deal. The media, understandably, reflecting public concern. And that was another case where they couldn't carry the confidence of the public. Yeah. Now, there were times during the COVID early stages of the COVID pandemic, when you had exactly the same kind of questioning, mm. which would lead to, you know, do we really have to do this? Yeah. Uh, and some disbelief 
of the government advice. Uh, so certainly, uh, when something bad starts to happen, my advice to government would be focus on it, delegate everything else. Don't, unlike Boris Johnson, miss out on the first uh, COBRA meetings to yeah. discuss the situation. Get right stuck in, because that sends a message to the public that you've got a grip. Um, David, as somebody who has been very heavily involved in national security and resilience, you're always pushing against the people, of, we can call them the bean counters, who say, well, do we really need all this redundancy in our system? Do we really need all these stocks of PPE? Do we really need um, emergency planners in, you know, in the Cotswold County Council or something like that? And, and, and so how does someone like you, whose job has always been on the one side of this sort of equation, fight against that kind of tendency, which I think is quite strong in this country and may have made us less resilient than some others. It is quite strong and it's very short term. Mm. And the only answer is rational argument and yeah. evidence. Yeah. I do make a distinction between the sudden impact. If there's an earthquake, you're not going to predict it. No. It's happened. You've got to deal with it as best you can. Although if you have done some preparations at a local level, it will all be much easier. But the slow burn crises, I think, are the ones that cause the most damage, precisely because year on year, they've been allowed to get worse and worse until suddenly, bang, it explodes into crisis. An example, uh, this is the anniversary of the terrible tragedy at Grenfell Tower. Yeah. We now know, thanks to the inquiry, that for years the building regulations were not properly enforced, the tests on flammable materials were not necessarily all carried out to the standards they should have been. So over a long period of years, more and more buildings, high-rise buildings, were given cladding that was potentially unsafe. So you can see that as a slow burn potential crisis. Now, the answer to that is for government and for companies, because this can happen at corporate level too. Mm. You have to keep looking for what are the things that are getting worse and try and nip them in the bud. Now, it may be that you can't solve it quickly, mm. but at least you've then got a plan and you've got public confidence uh, and you can take some precautionary measures for the high-rises that do have been discovered to have flammable material. Another example might be junior doctor's pay, completely yeah. different example. Yeah. But for over 10 years, the gap between their real wages and their money wages has got wider and wider. They're not alone in that, of no. course. But it was inevitable that if you keep that widening going yeah. further and further for 10 years or more, at some point, patience will run out, you'll get... Uh, industrial action, and we are all liable to suffer as a result of it. So there are elephants in the room. Why aren't these crises spotted? Sometimes they are genuinely difficult to spot, yeah. and, but some of them are elephants in the room. And they don't get spotted, often because to spot them and try and sort them is to admit that the current policies ain't working right. and are leading to trouble. In these sort of media-hungry, social media-hungry days, that's quite a big ask in the political world to say, we made a great fuss about this policy, we're determined to pursue it, 
But actually the evidence coming back and the analysis shows it's not actually going to deliver what it wanted. If uh, you and other commentators jump in and then say you turn government failure yeah. and so on, you will get resistance. Yeah. So I think it's about creating a culture where people recognize that you have to keep revisiting these plans. Some of them will work well, others less well, you adjust. And as the facts change, you then begin to uh, readjust uh, your policies. It's a different mindset. Now, I'm making that point in a very kind of calm, rational way. The world of politics is a, yeah, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. We must talk also about a particular type of crisis, which is a cybersecurity crisis. And of course, your own background having led GCHQ gives you a, a lot of uh, important perspective here. And in particular, you make reference in the book to the hack of the NHS systems known as WannaCry, which was potentially a devastating blow to the entire IT backbone of the National Health Service. Perhaps you could talk a bit about that. I think the principles are very relevant. Mm. They hit the National Health Service very hard, and in Northern Ireland particularly mm. hard. And we discovered afterwards, of course, that uh, the NHS trusts were aware that their cyber systems were not as they should be and not as well protected and were using old software. There were plans in place to gradually upgrade, but those plans were going to take years. And WannaCry arrived and caught caught them out. Mm. That's a good example where it's the same principles of, if you like, the slow burn crisis and spotting the vulnerabilities and trying to sort them. Unfortunately, WannaCry arrived before a lot of the system had been sorted. And you can see very clearly that some trusts were very badly hit. And you need plans uh, to deal with it when it happens, because it will happen again. It'll be a different kind of attack. Yeah. Uh, the recent attack that stole the personal details from British Airways yes. and Boots and other big organizations uh, shows how sophisticated uh, the attackers have now got. Mm. Uh, a big organization like British Airways has networks that are extremely well protected. Yeah. And they know the future of the company depends on that. Mm. Uh, But what the attackers did was find a supplier, in this case, uh, payroll services. Mm. And then by investigating the supplier, discovered there was one little bit of software, MoveIt, a file transfer program, completely below the radar horizon of the board and uh, senior level. So they attacked that. Mm. And by infiltrating that, that enabled them to get the details of British Airways employees. Yeah. Uh, and that, again, once you realize that that's how the attackers are, the sort of modus operandi of mm. the attackers, you can then begin in the corporate world to start working through your own supply chain yeah. to check out. Uh, it's essential they have really good advice. So the National Cyber Security Center, part of GCHQ, mm. their website is well worth looking at as an individual yeah. as well as a, as, a, as a corporate. But in the end, a lot of these problems come from the sector that's writing the software. Right. And the new United States cybersecurity strategy, just been published, shifts the emphasis onto the industry to say you've got to produce better products. Yeah. 
let's move from from something that feels very abstract, the, the world of cybersecurity and coding, to something that's very direct and personal. And, and you you have a fascinating section where you you demonstrate what Sweden has done and the leaflet that was sent to all every household in Sweden in 2018, which effectively informed Swedes that they needed to think about the possibility of a major crisis, including a crisis in which sort of the normal functions of society broke down. Um, and and how they would prepare at a domestic level. One thinks, would that ever happen in this country? And 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 you you sort of speculate a bit about that. So we, perhaps you could uh, sort of unfold that for us. Yes, I, when I was security intelligence coordinator in the cabinet office mm. after nine eleven, um, the government did agree to us putting around a booklet, yeah. quite short, but with basic information that if there was a catastrophic attack, this is what you should do. Now, uh, our Swedish friends have taken this several stages further. It's the way they think about civil defense yeah. uh, these days. And the general tone, I, I got their permission to reproduce yep. a key page, mm. which is at the back of the book, uh, is these are things that a sensible household should do. And in a sense, also the discussions that members of a household should have about what do we do if... As an element to, to what you've just said there, and, and also thinking again about Sweden, and I was struck recently that there was, a, there was an incident, uh, I think within the last couple of months, where there was a test of an alert on a national mobile phone network. Uh, and of course, as you and I will both know, that part of the point of these tests is to see if things work, and you know some networks may not have worked. But th somehow this test became a big political scandal, and it felt to me a very depressing example of how in this country we're more interested in the argument than in sort of the solution and find it learning lessons. What, what, what were your sort of reflections on that? What it brought back to my mind was the period uh, in 2004 and 2005 when the terrorism threat was really very high. And uh, we argued with ministers, will you let us conduct a live exercise in the London Underground? They took some persuading, but eventually they said yes. So we took over Bank Station at weekend and we ran a terrorist attack on the underground and all the emergency services were there. And thank goodness we did because the tragic events of 7-7, yep. the attacks on London transport took place not that long afterwards. Yeah. So you need these sort of exercises. Mm. In the end, ministers said, well, if you're going to do it, we don't want to frighten the population. Yeah. So we will actually invite the broadcasters, one of the broadcast companies, to film the whole thing and broadcast it live so everyone can see it. Right. That was a brilliant, brilliant idea. And it sort of took the sting yeah. out of this kind of rumor mill. And that, I think, relates back to your Mm. earlier observation. You don't want the public in fear. But on the other hand, government is negligent if it's not providing sensible, timely uh, advice. And that's kind of balance. Um, in the case of the national alert system, I said, thank goodness, I'd been arguing for such a system. The technology just wasn't there to yeah. do it. Now it is. And when you think about it, Almost everyone has a mobile device. Yes. So you could pass a message to a geographical location saying the storm warning uh, is now issued. It's much worse than anyone thought. Mm. So please, 
in those areas, you know, be prepared, be yeah. ready. Uh, even if you took the tower block tragedy, yeah. would it be possible in the future for the residents of high-rise buildings or other facilities potentially at risk to register so that they would get from the fire and emergency services a specific warning if something was happening. In the case of Grenfell Tower, such a system would have enabled the emergency services to say, forget about the earlier advice to stay put, get out now. Yeah. Well, that would require a bit of development of the system. It would require the public to say, no, this is not big brother state wanting my phone number and all the rest of it. So there's a real confidence building uh, case to be made. And they people have to trust that the government is acting in good faith. But after the terrible example of Grenfell Tower, I hope, I hope that people realise that these sorts of security measures are there for them. Yeah. So I just finally want to thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, David's book, How to Survive a Crisis, really is going to be uh, worth reading. However however you live your life, whether you are in charge of large organizations or just thinking about your own family's resilience, I can highly recommend it. So thank you for being here today, David. It's been a pleasure. We've talked a lot in this episode about the importance of resilience. So if you'd like to help us build resilience at Podmasters, you can support us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast for more information. Thank you and goodbye. The Bunker was written and presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomasevich, the audio editor was Robin Lieburn, and the assistant producer was me, Matilda Snell. Music was by Kenny Dickinson, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, group editor was Andrew Harrison. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>